So why don't I pray uh, as we do that? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you. There's so much in it that uh, oftentimes when we come to it, we just can't get to the end of even what's in there. Um, But Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, you'd help us to see uh, what your eyes uh, see, Lord. Help us to see what we need to see. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, back in 2017, uh, for our anniversary, Emmy planned this uh, great trip for us to travel around Germany. We were already living in Europe at the time, so it wasn't, you know, this, like, frivolous thing. It was just a, you know, cost about $50 to fly there. And she planned this trip uh, for us to travel around Germany and go to all these historical sites that were related to what was called the Great Protestant Reformation. Um, And... uh, you know, one of the sites that we went to um, was the Castle Church in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. So we can maybe put that one up the next slide there. Um, the Castle Church in, in Wittenberg, Germany. And I had this experience there that I'll, that I'll never forget. Um, because standing inside that church, I actually got to read out in a church service the Bible verses that changed Martin Luther's life. Uh, Martin Luther was the guy that sparked this great reformation, and, and I got to read these Bible verses that actually changed his life, and through him, these couple of sentences from the Bible actually changed the entire Western world. It was a great privilege in the service to get to read out Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And I know what you're thinking now. This sounds like a very romantic anniversary trip. This is, this is like a very romantic uh, anniversary trip. Well, why am I telling you this? And it's because um, right there, not only... Uh, In that church, that was a church that Luther preached in regularly. Uh, Not only did he preach there, but it was also on the doors of that very same church that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses. Um, And those were 95 statements about what it means to live as a Christian and what it means to be part uh, of a church. And those ideas, those 95 things actually that he wrote down, they changed the world forever. Uh, Much of how the Western world thinks today, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, um, much of uh, the worldview that that the Western world has shared for 500 years was birthed out of those 95 statements at that moment in history. And so now, do you know what statement number one is? Um, It's arguably the most important one because Luther put it first. Can we go to that slide? It should be two slides ahead. One more. There we go. Uh, Here is... Uh, Statement number one of Luther's 95 Theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So Martin Luther wanted to say, here's what I think is the most important thing about what Christianity is and how you live as somebody in the church. He said, Jesus thinks that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Not just the start of a Christian's relationship with Christ, but the whole life. Not just every once in a while for big sins that we are to repent, but all of life is to be one of repentance. And at the very center of the text that we're looking at today is this idea of repentance. But but think about that. Think about this idea of repentance in the world that we live in today. I mean, doesn't doesn't that make you a weak person if you you repent? doesn't, Doesn't repentance, doesn't that mean you're, you, you sort of disempowered yourself and, and you've given power then to, to some other authority and you've said, hey, I've wronged this other person or this other authority? Isn't repentance something to be avoided at all costs? Like you want to you portray strength, you want to pr- pr- portray power. Because in our culture, what it tells us is that today we have to be strong and independent 
And if you're strong and independent, then that, what that means is that everything, everything that you think and do is right. And you're accountable to no one. That's what our culture wants us to believe. And if that's true, it means, well, then there's no reason to, to repent. But what if we're getting that wrong? What if this need to be perceived as strong and independent is actually the reason we're so anxious as a society today? If you look back at these last few chapters in 1 Samuel, what you'll find is all kinds of people who, who just, they desperately want the power of God to explode into their lives. They, they, they want God's, God's power, God's strength to just explode into their lives, to help them with their battles, to give them confidence, to give them joy. And just think about your own life. Can you identify with that in any way right now? Is there some part of your life that you're like, God, I just really need you, your power to explode into my life in this area. God, I just need your peace. I just need your joy. I just need your love to, to just explode into my life right now. And I know when I think about my own life, that's what I want. At every turn, with every battle over my sin, with every anxious moment that I have to have, God's power, his strength, his presence, his love, his joy to explode into my life. And what I want to show you from this text is that, believe it or not, the more you become the kind of person whose life is marked by repentance, the more you become a person of strength, the more strength you have, and the more joy you'll experience. And get this, the more you repent, the more joy God will experience. Did you know there's something you and I can do that causes God to experience joy? We'll get to that in a minute. So let's look at 1 Samuel 7 in three headings. We're, we're not gonna, like I said, we're not going to get to everything in this text. There's just so much going on here. But we, what we will look at is this one theme, the, the theme of repentance. And so first we'll see the outcome of repentance, and then the nature of repentance, and then thirdly, the life of repentance. So first, the outcome of repentance. And for the last three chapters... Remember, the main character in the last three chapters has been the Ark of the Covenant, this very important piece of furniture that was the mediator of the presence of God in the ancient world. And the Ark, it was taken, remember, it was taken by Israel into battle because they thought, hey, if we take the Ark into battle, then, you know, God will fight for us. And then they lost, and it was captured by the Philistines, and they took it into one of their temples, and like, if we have it there, then, then you know, we'll have some of God's power, and he can do things for us, and then their God falls over, and people start getting sick, and so they... They send it back to Israel. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, you get the end of the story of the ark, uh, and then you don't really hear about it much for like 20 more years. It just kind of goes to this place and is there for 20 more years. But um, 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, it says, The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years. And then at the end of verse 2, in the next paragraph, this is referring to the start of those 20 years, it says, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So the ark comes back, they set it up in a place where it's going to live for a long time, and, and it says, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. And that's our theme that we're looking at. That's repentance. And we'll talk about the nature of what repentance is in, in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to point out the outcome of repentance. What happens when we repent? What, what's the result of us repenting? What good is it for us to repent? Because think about it, if I'm going to admit weakness... 
or brokenness or admit that I was wrong or admit that I've done something immoral, sinful. If I'm going to admit that, if I'm going to admit that there is some transcendent authority who is over me, who has a righteous standard that I'm to live by, if I'm going to do that, then what's the benefit? What good is it? Wouldn't it be better for me to present myself as strong and powerful to that being? Well, notice what happens in our text. Because Israel does repent. There's national repentance. It says they turn back to the Lord. They sacrifice animals. They do all of these things. They, they repent of not only trying to manipulate God, which is what they were doing before, but also verse 4 they repent of worshiping all sorts of other gods. And along with that, the immoral practices that often went along with worshiping those other gods. Which means they repent of it all. They repent of all of it. And they come together in this huge national celebration of repentance down in verses 5 and 6. And they just bring it, they just put it all out there. And they come before the Lord and they repent. But the Philistines, remember the Philistines, their enemy, the ones who captured the ark and returned it out of fear, they hear about this, this national gathering and they assume wrongly, but they assume this anyway, that Israel, now that they have the ark back, they think, okay, they've got, they've got their power back. So they must be amassing for war. They must be getting together for a battle. And so while all Israel is repenting, the Philistines, they get their armies together and they go up in verses 7 to 10 and they, they prepare and then they go on and attack Israel. And you remember the last time this happened. Remember what they tried to do? They, they were like, oh, we're losing in battle. Let's get the ark. Let's bring it out. Well, instead of trying to manipulate God, they, they actually this time do what they should have done the previous time. They, they go to Samuel. Samuel's who they should have gone to way back then. They turn to Samuel and they ask him to pray and to make sacrifices. In other words, they pause and they wait for an answer from the Lord. And they ask for his help instead of trying to manipulate God. And here's the outcome. In verse 11, it says they defeated the Philistines. And then down in verse uh, 13, it says that from then until Samuel died... The Philistines never attacked Israel again. This nation that they've been battling and land had been going back and forth and thousands and thousands of their people who had died in battle. It says the Philistines never attacked Israel again. But not only that, verse 14, some of their land was restored. Remember when they moved the, the ark around and they kept putting it in these places that were this disputed land? Well, they got that land back. There was restoration and then at the end of verse 14, it says this, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. The Amorites were one, another of their enemies, but they were always fighting. Now, there's three important words here in verse 14 that show us the outcome of repentance. There's the word restore, there's the word delivered, and there's the word peace. You can look at it. It's all right there. Restore, delivered, and peace. Now, what that's saying is the outcome of repentance for Israel was restoration, deliverance, and peace. Now think about this. Back in chapter 4, even though back then, remember they had the ark? They went into the battle and they lost. 
And now here in chapter 7, they have the ark again. They go into battle, but this time they win. So what's the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7? They had the ark before and lost. And the outcome of that battle was destruction and subjugation and fear. And now they have it again and they win. And the outcome is restoration and deliverance and peace. And so what's the difference? The only difference between that passage and this one is repentance. In other words, admitting weakness, admitting brokenness, admitting immorality, admitting that we have broken the standard of a righteous and holy God, a transcendent God who has all authority over us. And it sounds backwards, doesn't it? It sounds backwards, but admitting, admitting that you have weakness, admitting that you are, are full of brokenness, admitting that you are a sinful person, actually leads to strength. Doing the weak thing is what makes you strong. Whereas trying to protect a strength that you don't actually have, pridefully taking life into your own hands, exalting yourself, even trying to exalt yourself over God and manipulate him, those are the things that lead to weakness. And the outcome of that is, is often destruction, subjugation, and fear. The outcome of repentance is strength, it's restoration, it's deliverance, it's peace. And so where are you? Do you want to be restored? Do you want to have your, your brokenness pieced back together and be made new? Do you want to be delivered from something? From, from some habitual sin that seems to control you? Do you want peace? Do you want freedom from fear and from worry? If you've been tracking with this story through the last three chapters, since the start of chapter four, what everyone wanted from the start of chapter four until now, even before that, what did Hannah want when she prayed? She wanted the same thing. She wanted the power of God to explode into her life. Israel wanted the power of God to explode into their lives. The Philistines wanted it. The 70 who died in chapter 6, they wanted it. But all of them tried to get it through manipulation. Trying to obligate God in some way. But what we're seeing here is if, if you want the power of God to explode into your life, if you want God's love to explode into your life, to be poured out on you, what we see here in 1 Samuel 7 is the fuse that lights the explosion of the power of God in your life, of the love of God in your life, of the peace of God in your life. The fuse that lights the whole thing is repentance. And get this, this is incredible. Because not only does that happen when you and I repent, but there's also joy. Because when you get to the New Testament, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, Jesus tells these three parables about lost things being found. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. And in Luke 15, after telling a parable about an entire village rejoicing over just one sheep that was lost that was found, the whole village celebrates. They put on a huge party, a giant celebration. Jesus says this, I tell you, Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
And did you catch what that says? What that's saying is when you and I repent, when we go before the Lord and we bring him our brokenness and our sinfulness and the ways that we've turned away from him, when we go before the Lord and we bring him those things and we present them to him, it says that there is a party in heaven. It, heaven rejoices, that God himself rejoices. So there's a thing that you and I can do that actually makes God joyful. Did you ever think you could do that? Actually cause God joy? I think most of us think we just cause God disappointment. But there's a thing that we can do that causes God joy, and that's to repent. And by the way, it doesn't say we make God rejoice when we present ourselves as those who don't need repentance. Right? He says they rejoice over the one who repents, not over the 99 who don't think they need to. The ones who think they're righteous in and of themselves. When we're proud, when we think we can overcome our sins, our brokenness, our weakness on our own. No, no, no. It says when you and I repent, there is rejoicing. And so if you're ever wondering how you could live a life that pleases God, you ever wonder that? You ever ask God that? Oh, God, how can I just please you? How can I just make you happy? You do what Martin Luther said in the 95 Theses, you make your entire life from this day until the day you die a life of repentance. Because not only does that make God joyful, but it brings restoration, deliverance, and peace into your life. Well, if you want that, then we need to understand what repentance is. So point two, the nature of repentance. Now, on the recommendation of a friend, I've been reading this book called Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. It's not one of his um, you know, famous works of fiction. It's, it's actually it's a, a travelogue of a journey he took traveling across, across America with his dog. I would love to do this. Um, and uh, his dog's named Charlie, and he did this back in, I think, 1960. And so uh, the book is actually mostly just self-reflection. And he goes into all these different cultures around America, and then he reflects on that culture and how he responds to that. It's a very fascinating book. And a recurring theme throughout the book is him getting lost and having to turn around. And here's what he, again, reflecting on himself, describing himself. I love this, maybe my favorite line from the whole book. Uh, because in describing himself, he says this He says, I was born lost and take no pleasure in being found. Do you know somebody like that? Born lost. If, it's, if the thing's over there, a hundred times out of a hundred, if it's to, to your left, you're going to turn right. That's Steinbeck. But I love this description. I was born lost and take no pleasure in being found. I love it because it perfectly describes the biblical doctrine of how every single human being is born. We're all born lost. Every single one of us. We're all born heading in the opposite direction from God who is our true home. And we take no pleasure in being found. We, we reject him. Now, the way that Israel is headed away from God in our text is through idolatry. In verse 3, we find out that in addition to how they attempted to manipulate God back in chapter 4, it, it says they're worshiping, they've been worshiping these other gods, these idols. They were unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful to him by trying to manipulate him and by worshiping other gods. In other words, the only way that we could be faithful uh, at this point, is to repent. That's the only way they could do it. 
They have to repent. And this is what Samuel tells them. Look again at verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashereths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, you might hear that and be thinking, okay, well, if that's the kind of thing he's repented of, then I'm all good because I'm not worshiping Krishna, I'm not worshiping Allah, I'm not worshiping the Baals. You know, there's not like another God out there that I'm worshiping. I'm here. But the definition of an idol is actually anything you put in the place of God in your life. So an idol could certainly be another God, but it can just as easily be money or success or security or sex. An idol could even be your children or your spouse. Anything that you make the most important thing in your life is your idol. Which means any and every form of idolatry requires repentance. And in this verse, we actually see the nature of repentance. And here it is. Repentance is this. It's always a turning away from one thing towards another. Like John Steinbeck, he always had to do this in his book. When, when, when we get lost, when we're headed in the wrong direction, he's got a whole chapter on having to turn around at a border. <laughs> a whole chapter on, on basically being lost and having to turn around. And when we're headed in the wrong direction, to then go the right way, it always has two parts to it. First, you admit you're headed the wrong way. In other words, you stop. That's part one. And that's what we see in the text. Samuel says first, rid yourselves of the idols. But then second is the turnaround. Step one, stop. Rid yourselves of the idols. Admit that. Step two, turn around. He says, commit yourself to the Lord. Serve him only. And then there is actually a third thing, um, like we saw before. Notice the results. He says that God will deliver you. It's the deliverance. Uh, the repentance, it results in deliverance, but that's, that part is out of our hands. We can only do steps one and two. We can only stop and turn around. It's up to God to do the results. But you see right here in this text that the nature of repentance is both admitting and recognizing you're headed in the wrong direction. It's to stop and turning around and going the other way. Now, many of you know from time to time I like to do some drawings, so here's one for you. Um, I haven't done one in a while, but I want you to think about repentance like this. So you've got God there in the center. God's in the center, and then all around the perimeter... Um, whatever your idol is, it's somewhere away from God on the perimeter. Uh, it doesn't really matter what your idol is. It could be money. could be power. could be sex. could be greed. could be fame. could be glory. could be security. could be safety. Whatever, whatever it is. It's always out on the outside. It's always out on the perimeter, away from God. And any step towards an idol is a step away from God. So say, go to the next one. Say it's money or it's greed, or it's security. Any step in that direction is a step away from God. And the only way to repent is to stop and turn around. Go to the next one. Stop and turn around. Back towards the center. I like what was said in our, in our liturgy. Like, we've never gone so far from home we can't turn around and come back again. That's the, that's the picture of repentance. And so it doesn't matter how, how far you've gone away from the center, how, how far you've gone towards whatever that particular idol is, we can always stop and turn around and come home. That's what repentance is. 
And by the way, replacing one idol with another, that's not repentance. That's just a step to the right or to the left. And so, of course, you could replace money with power, but that's, that's not repentance. Repentance is only when we stop and turn around back towards the center where God is. And by the way, do you know why repentance is so hard? Do you know why it's so challenging to us, why it's so painful? Um, Augustine, writing back in the fourth century, um, was this church father, and he had this little book called uh, On the Freedom of the Will. And he says in there that the things that we turn to instead of God, whatever our idols are, the things that we turn to, he says they actually become limbs to our souls, and the most painful thing is to have them amputated. That's why it's so painful. Because whatever that idol is, whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that you're going towards, Augustine says that becomes like a limb to your soul. It actually becomes part of you. And the only way to get rid of it is to amputate it. And that's why it hurts. Now, somehow when it comes to repentance before God, we think we only need the first first half. We we think we only need to admit that we're doing something wrong, uh, but not do the second half, right? And so to admit that we're, Uh, you know, in this text, to admit that they're worshiping foreign gods. But repentance is always both. It's both recognizing our sin and turning from it towards God. But somehow we think repentance is only the first half. So if your idol is money, to admit that your idol is money over and over and over again to God, but never to actually repent, never actually turn the other direction, for example, maybe give some away or give up an opportunity for more, whatever it is. Or if your idol is sex, to, to admit that your idol is sex and to say, you know, hey, God, yes, I'm having sex outside of marriage, or, you know, I, I'm constantly looking at pornography, or I'm always lusting over that person, and to just constantly tell God that, but never turning away, never turning uh, the other direction, and stop having sex outside of marriage, or put some accountability in place for what you look at online. Or if your idol is power, to admit that your idol is power, you know, always looking to have some upper hand and just telling God that all the time, like, oh, God, I'm so sorry that I'm really into this power thing, but then never actually turning from it the other direction and looking to serve, looking to humble yourself. And so that's the nature of repentance. And I want us to think for just a minute that when you and I come to God to repent, is that really what we're doing? Are we only doing the first half? When we think about a life of repentance, are we only thinking about the first half or are we thinking about the whole thing? Are we really turning around? Are we really doing both parts? Or are we just running towards our idols and telling God about it along the way? And only you can answer that. But if you are doing that, then that's not leading you towards restoration and deliverance and peace. And joy. Certainly not joy, neither yours or God's. But if you do repent, that repentance, hard as it may be, that is the thing that will bring you restoration. That is the thing that will bring you deliverance. That is the thing that will bring you peace. That is the thing that will fill you with joy and fill God Himself with joy. And remember what Martin Luther said that repentance is not just the entry point into Christianity, though it is. It's the life of a Christian. Repentance is the life of a Christian. The Christian who makes their whole life a life of repentance is the Christian who continually, over and over again, experiences that restoration, that deliverance, that peace, and that joy. And that's, that's point three, the life of repentance. Now, there's two things that happen in this text uh, that point to this life of repentance. And the first is this. Look down in verse 12. After they repented, 
after they then defeated the Philistines in battle, look what Samuel does, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And isn't that interesting? So the first thing that they do as they begin to live a life of repentance, as they've enjoyed the deliverance and the restoration that God has given them, the very first thing that they do to, to, to live this life of repentance is they actually set up a way to remember the outcome over, of their last, uh, what God did after they repented. And so the first thing to do is remember. The life of repentance is one of remembrance. And Samuel, he set up the stone, he called it Ebenezer. And in the Bible, an Ebenezer, it's not a character from Charles Dickens. An Ebenezer, it's a physical reminder of something that God did for you. Uh, if you remember back in the beginning of the book of Joshua, he set one up when they crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan to remember how God brought them through the wilderness into a home of their own. And so that's the first thing to living this life of repentance. It's remembering how God has restored you, how he's delivered you in the past. And for the Christian, that's to remember the gospel. Now, one great Ebenezer for the Christian, if you're wondering, like, well, what's my Ebenezer? Should I get a stone? Should I just put a stone in my driveway, out in front of my front door? Like, what do I do? How do I do this? Well, here's an Ebenezer for, for the Christian, is to read and reread and reread Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, it just tells you the story. It tells you how God's delivered you. It tells you how he's continually delivering you. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So remembering, that's the first thing in this text to help us live a whole life of repentance. We remember what happened after the last time we repent. But the second thing that's here is to keep the truth in front of them. Look down at verse 15. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. So for the rest of Samuel's life, it says there in verse 15, year after year, he, he circumnavigated the country. He traveled around to these key places, and it says, judging Israel in all those places. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, a judge on American Idol. He wasn't going around saying, oh, you're the most talented village, and that's not what it was. The word involved a comprehensive leadership that fused together prayer and worship and justice and mercy and wise counsel and teaching of the word of God. Now, I think what that's saying is in order to live a life of repentance, in addition to always remembering, you need to be continually going forward, growing in your knowledge, your experience of the word of God to know that you need to repent. And we talked about this before, but we tend to think that the longer a person is a Christian, in other words, the more they tend to live in line with what the Bible says and try to live out the morals of the Bible, we tend to think that then the less they need to repent. Oh, you've been a Christian for a while? Okay, you probably have less to repent of than somebody who's been a Christian for a week. We tend to think that, right? Because that person has been a Christian for a week. Man, is their life messed up. But this way, you've been a Christian for a long time. Surely you're good to go. Not so. Not so. The longer you're a Christian... The more you dig into the truth of Scripture, the more you recognize your need to repent of things. And this has been my experience. I've been a Christian now. I was counting this week uh, for 27 years. And what I found is the more I feel like I'm growing, the more I read the Word of God, the more I, I ingest the Word of God, 
the more I see in my life that I need to repent from. And I'm sorry to break that to you, especially if you're a relatively new Christian. I'm sorry to break that to you, but you feel like you've been repenting of a lot. Well, guess what? (laughs) The older you get in the faith, the more you need to repent. Martin Luther was right. The whole life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And that's why I think Samuel goes around year after year after year, opening up the scriptures and teaching it to them. Now, here's the good news about that, though. Because remember we said at the beginning that the idea of repentance is actually, it's kind of repulsive in our modern culture. Because to repent today, it means you're weak, it means you're disempowered, it it means you're admitting that you're not a strong, independent, utterly autonomous person who has no authority over yourself, you're your own authority. And how can a person do that today? Why would you repent? And so in our culture, we hold this idea up. But at the same time in our culture, we hold up this other idea of like, well, you know, I just want, I want the power of God to break into my life. The love of God, the presence of God to explode into my life. And we try and hold these two things together. And what we've seen all through this chapter is that the way this happens, the way that the power of God, the love of God, the presence of God explodes into our life is not through presenting ourselves as worthy of God's power, worthy of his love, worthy of his presence, going and and, and trying to, to, to puff out our chest and talk about how great we are, but instead to repent in weakness, in brokenness, to repent. Repentance is the fuse that lights the explosion of God in our lives. Because remember what Jesus says happens in heaven when a person repents. Remember that? Luke 15, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And it is only in Jesus Christ that we even have access to that joy. Because do, do, you know, do you know where else it talks about making God joyful? There's another spot in the Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we can throw off everything that entangles us. In other words, it's saying our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. What's Hebrews 12 talking about? It's talking about the life of repentance. Did you hear the two parts in there? Admit to stop, to throw off, and to turn around. And turning around, it says then to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. But then it tells us why we can do that. Why we can live this life of repentance. Because look at this, verse 2, Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 2 it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what that's saying is, Jesus Christ went to the cross, endured the cross, scorned the shame of the cross, for the what? For the joy. And what is that joy? That is the joy that he would experience sitting at the right hand of God the Father, celebrating, rejoicing whenever a sinner repents. That's the joy. Which means whether you repent for the first time today, turning from your idols towards Christ, or or you do it for the millionth time, when you do that, all of heaven is rejoicing, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are at the center of the throne, and they are leading the party, the rejoicing in heaven. 
And so do you want the power of God to explode into your life? The love of God, the presence of God. What we've seen in this text is the match that lights the fuse is a, is a whole life of repentance. And so what do you need to repent from this week? What, what on the perimeter are you continually walking towards and away from God? What on the perimeter are you walking towards and even telling God that you're walking towards it along the way but not turning around always having him at your back? Where do you need to stop and turn around? Because if you can do that today, and if you can do it again tomorrow, and again the next day, and so on, then what, what we're learning is that over time, the power of God, the love of God, the presence of God will explode into your life as you experience restoration, deliverance, peace, and joy. That's the life of repentance. That's why Martin Luther, when he said, okay, this is the most important thing that I can tell you about what it means to be a Christian and to be in the church, is that when Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's because if we can learn to do that, if we can be the people who, the kind of people who our whole lives are oriented around repentance, then we experience restoration, deliverance, peace, and joy. Uh, Jesus once told this parable in Luke 18. I'm just going to read it to you, and then I'll close. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There is much rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you as those who, uh, Lord, whether we're willing in our hearts to admit it right now or not, Lord, we need to repent. Lord, each one of us has something in our lives that, that at this moment, I know your spirit is prompting us to repent of. And so, our Father, we, we repent of our sins and we turn towards you. And Lord, we ask that as as a result and as the outcome of that, that you would give us deliverance and restoration and peace, and Lord, that you would be rejoicing even right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.